Yes, yeah, come tonight. Lord's Supper service is always wonderful. As Chris has said, I'm going to be ordained, which means I'm finally legitimate as a pastor. So um, <laughs> only took 20 years, but um, we'll talk about that tonight. Also, before I get into the sermon, uh, the survey that Chris was talking about, I know surveys are just a drag, but, and, and this one is a bit long. I'm going to be honest with you, depending upon how involved you are and all those kinds of how you answer it. It's a really smart survey. If you answered it certain ways, it sends you here and that, that kind of a thing. Uh, it could take up to 20 to 30 minutes long. So I know it's a big ask, but you don't have to do it all in one sitting. It's smart enough to know. You can like, I, I think you can stop and then come back to it later. Scott, are you here? Is that true? Okay, yeah, so, so it's a big ask, but we're doing it because we really want to get good feedback, thoughtful feedback from you, so that we can think about how we are doing th things as a church together, and as it said, we want to be strategic with the opportunities and, and, and things God gives us. We don't want to just kind of plod along doing what churches always do. We want to be strategic with our opportunities because we're limited, right? By God's grace, we are finite people. We're, as a church, we are a finite entity, and so we want to steward our our finiteness, our limitations well, and you filling out that survey, the, the good encouraging things as well as the honest maybe things that we need to grow and change in is going to be really helpful for us. So can I ask you that, especially if you're a member of this church, this is your way to serve all of us by giving your honest, godly feedback on, on that survey. So that's going to go out, I think, tomorrow morning. Well, with that, let's get into the sermon this morning. Um, if you're new, we're right now working through a five-week series entitled, Who Do Christians Think They Are? And as the, as the title kind of reveals, it is a series on our identity as Christians, kind of our group identity. And two weeks ago when we started the series, we addressed three possible, we kind of dismantled three identities that we can absorb for ourselves as Christians that because they are correct but not complete can distort how we think about the Christian faith. Last week, we then began to lay upon that foundation, talk about what is a Christian. And I guess if you could summarize, if you weren't here for those two weeks, that, that, that a Christian is someone that undergoes a shift in their identity. When you become a Christian, your intellect changes, your lifestyle changes, the way you actually navigate and move through this world actually changes, and the Bible calls this conversion. And maybe the most difficult aspect of that transformation is a little bit of what we talked about last week, us going from a sense of autonomy and moving to a sense of community. I made the case that Christianity is not just me and Jesus and then maybe some of the other Christians I happen to like, but Christianity is me and Jesus and his people, all of his people, all of his people. After all, his people, the church, are his bride his most treasured possession, and his joy. Now, we in the American church, because of our history and our culture, we don't tend to think of the church quite like that, even though in our vocabulary we have concepts that understand individuals that are individuals, but when they are in a group, there's a different sense of identity that describes it. So let me just kind of, kind of prime the pump here and get you thinking that way. So here we have... Uh, fish as individuals are fish, but when you have a bunch of fish together, don't say fishes, okay? That's not what I'm going with. When you have a bunch of fish together, what are they? A school, right? Fish are a school, all right? Pretty good. You get the idea. Now, we have birds are a flock. Yes, birds are a flock. Now, lions are a 
pride. Oh, that's so cool, right? Lions are a pride. Here's one. Whales are a pod. Yes, very good. Now here it gets a little bit more tricky. Hor oh, this one's not tricky. Horses are a herd. Pretty easy. How about this one? Geese are a gaggle. Oh, you guys are sharp. I'm going to stump you yet. Okay. Wolves are a pack. Very easy. Okay, I bet you guys aren't going to get this one. Tigers are a this is what I learned this week. Tigers are an ambush. How appropriately named, right? Yeah, now Christians, let's see this. Christians are a church, right? This is what's called a collective noun. When you have individuals of a species or a group that are treated together and taken together as a whole, functioning separately than the component or the, the, the individuals that make up the group. Christians is the plural of when you have uh, more than one Christian gathering together at, say, Pete's Coffee or the beach or the park. But church is the collective noun form of Christians, individual members of a species or a group taken together and treated as a one whole. Now, in this series, the last two weeks, I have said uh, probably two controversial things. Well, I guess three if you remember the whole punch you in the throat comment. I got a lot of feedback on that. But, but, the, but the two controversial things I had said that came from this, number one is this, that your conversion to Christ is personal, but it's not private. That's a real important one because in our culture, uh, and I understand why, privacy is more and more a big issue, right? I think mean, we get it. We don't want big tech or big government in our smartphones or knowing what's going on in our daily lives. But that sense of fear almost becomes a, um, the desire for privacy and that kind of security bleeds over, not just from big tech or government or anything else, but it, for one another. And we become to make an idol out of our privacy. And the reality is the Christian life, friends, it is the open life. The Christian life is the transparent life. When you come over to the Roadheaver house, we don't say, oh, would you wait 10 minutes and we close the door and clean up and then have you come inside. No, you come in and see all our glory, good, bad, and otherwise, right? The Christian life is, is not a private life. It's a personal life, no, no, no doubt, but it's not a private life. And a, a question for you, if you are a Christian, a good way to sense how you are doing in that area is, is, is this, this. If I ask you to give me your smartphone so I can just take a look through it, would you feel a little nervous? Would you feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, hold on, but let me just see what I was scrolling on Instagram first, right? That's a good litmus test. If another brother or sister in Christ asks you, can I just look through your smartphone, could you just whip it out and give it to them easily? Or would you be a little bit like, oh, what would they see? What would they see, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about the weird movie, like, the weird, like, when I was going to say weird movies, that could be broad. But, like, if you happen to like superhero movies or, like, if you pull up in my art, my, my smartphone right now, you'll go see on my Safari thing, I'm looking at... I'm looking to find cheap places to buy ammunition. Okay, so that might be a little bit odd, but that's not unbiblical, right? The, the point is, the Christian life is personal, but it's not a private thing. Now, that statement was based upon another somewhat controversial statement, and that was this. Christianity is not about you inviting Jesus into your heart. Rather, it is about God through Jesus inviting you into his family. I mean, there's a subtle distinction there, but it's important, isn't it? 
Because the first one, notice who's in control? Who's still in the driver's seat? Who's calling the shots? I am. It's a little bit as if I'm, I'm, I'm assembling a team and they're like, well, there's, there's Jesus, there's Allah, there's humanism, there's material. Jesus, why don't you be on my team? Right? But that's not what's going on. The second one is that God, through his grace and mercy, invited me, invited you to be a part of his family. It was based upon that last week that I made the case that if and when you become a Christian, you are both saved to a people, that family, and you are saved to and or for those people, that family, that church, that body of Christ, that bride of Christ. So we just did a membership class this weekend, and it was really wonderful. We had like 40 or 45 people attending it. And so I was just thinking again about the wonder of the local church. And, and do you realize, do you realize that prior to the 1900s, or, or the 19th centuries, prior to the 19th century, you would be hard-pressed to find any Christian who would conceive of their Christian faith apart from the church? Prior to the 19th century, you'd be hard-pressed to talk to any Christian who conceived of their faith apart from the church. Today, in the 21st century, you would be hard-pressed to find any Christian who could conceive of their faith as integral with the church. In other words, for 19 centuries, to be a Christian was to be the church. And this was true regardless of whether you were Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox. To be a Christian meant to be part of something far greater than yourself. But now in the last two centuries, since the end of the 19th century to the 21st century, it's hard to get Christians to even conceive of themselves and, and the church as essential. Now here's the reality, right? And this is something we teach all the time. History is important, so that's important, but history is not inerrant. Opinions are important, but opinions are not infallible. Preferences are important, but preferences are not prescriptions. Only God's word, if you're a Christian, this is the way you live, only God's word is inerrant, infallible, and prescriptive for our lives. So while this historical case I looked at is important, while I may have some opinions about the church and some preferences, at the end of the day, and you do too, those things ultimately do not hold the weight they should if you were a Christian. What should? God's word. God's word is the only thing that's inerrant, infallible, and prescriptive. So let's see, what does God's word say about how Christians identify themselves? So we're going to briefly, you don't have to follow along, I'll put these verses on the screen. Let's look at how the, in the book of Acts, because that's when kind of the church in our new covenant understanding was birthed, let's look at how the Christians identified themselves in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Saul was ravaging the church, Acts chapter 11. The report of this, of the gospel spreading beyond, beyond um, just Jerusalem area, came to the ears of the church. Acts 11 again, later on. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Acts chapter 12. Herod the king arrested some who belonged to the church. Notice what is missing, by the way. They're not saying Christians, are they? It's the church. It's the church. It's the church. This is the way 
Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, is recording the activities of these early Christians. Acts 12, 5, the church was earnestly praying. Acts 14, they gathered the church together. Acts 15, the church sent them on their way. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and on and on and on. It goes through the book of Acts. By the way, Christian, that term, only appears twice in the entire book of Acts. And both times, it's kind of a pejorative comment, right? Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And then when Paul is proclaiming the Festus, he says, are you trying to make me a Christian? So the only times the word Christian appears in the book of Acts, it's only twice. And it's, some, it's, it's pejorative. I'm not saying we abandon the term by all. I'm just saying when the Christians identified themselves in the book of Acts, and this is consistent in the New Testament, it was with a collective noun as the church so it seems clear friends by by looking at the, briefly at scripture to be a christian is to be the church in fact let me let me say something so radical to say this if you consider yourself a christian the church is not an optional extra it, it, it is the shape of your following jesus I'll say that again because it's so radical. If you call yourself a Christian, the church is not an extra for you. It's the actual shape of your following Jesus. That's how important this is. Now, now that I've made this, this massive statement, let me nuance it a little bit. Just a little bit, right? Right? Because now you got it. Wow, Pastor Rick's really saying the church, Christians are the church. I want you to hear that because it's true. Now let me nuance it a little bit. Okay, does that then mean wherever and whenever you have Christians gathering, you have a church? Because if Christians are the church, then that seems to be a natural outflow, that wherever Christians are gathered, you have the church. Is that what you're saying? No. And yes. This is why it's nuanced. Let me address the yes answer first. Yes in the sense that if you are a Christian, you are a part of the universal church that it comprises all believers of all time past and those God will call to himself in the future of every nation, of every language, of every tribe, of every culture that has ever been, that has heard the gospel and responded. If you are a Christian, you're part of that universal church. In fact, as we gather here today, that church has been gathering for probably about 20 hours now all over the globe, praising God, praying, seeking him out, fellowshipping with one another. We here on the West Coast, we're one of the last of the Christians to gather in this universal church. And then our brothers and sisters out in Hawaii, and then that's it, and then it starts over. So you see what I'm saying? So yes, if you're a Christian, you're part of that universal church, but no... Just because Christians are gathering, it doesn't mean you're a church. In the sense that the universal church is the spiritual invisible reality that encompasses all Christians of all time in every place. But that universal church is realized, made tangible in concrete, identifiable local churches that are physical and temporal. So yes... All Christians are part of the universal church, but no, a group of Christians don't automatically make a local church. Friends, a church 
is an identifiable has an identifiable shape and structure and membership. And I don't mean this building and structure. The Church of Christ community here in Laguna Hills has been here far longer before this building was put up. So when I say that the church is an identifiable thing with a structure and a shape and a membership, I'm not talking about bricks and mortar. So just as one example, open your Bibles. Um, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I, I touched on this briefly last week, so maybe think about it again this week. 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to pick up at verse 17. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is where um, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. And, and five times between verses 17 to 34, Paul says, when you gather as a church. So let me just read. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let me read starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, he's writing to the Corinthians, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. So let me tell you what's going on. So what we see happening here, as Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, He's making a distinction between coming together as a church, which is something they should be doing, and simply coming together in a way that doesn't please God and is therefore not a church. And, and by the way, if you want to learn how to be a church or a Christian, or how not to, I should say, read Corinthians. It's like Christians gone wild, right? So everything Paul says in Corinthians, we kind of learn by negative example. Don't do what the Corinthians do, and then you will be okay. And Paul is saying, you're gathering together, you're coming together, but this is not a church. You're, you're doing these things wrong. So my point simply in 1 Corinthians 11 here is that there is a coming together that even Paul says, this is not the church, and this is not the Lord's Supper, even though externally they were gathering together and doing things we would say is a church and doing the Lord's Supper. The point is there's an identifiable shape and structure to these things. Now, if you're paying attention, you're thinking, wait a minute. I know Matthew 18, 20. Jesus said, when two or three of you are gathered in my, not, my name, I am there in your midst. Isn't that a church? You may have thought that yourself. Maybe you've heard friends say that. Is that really what Matthew 18 is teaching us? Well, the only way we're going to find out is to go to the text. Let's go to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, first book of the New Testament here. And I'm going to read, just to get some context, which is always a good thing to do, verses 15 to 20. I want you to listen real carefully here. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, put a pin in that statement there, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Put a pin in that whole phrase. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Do you notice what the context is? The context of what we just read is a situation of church discipline. Did you notice that the church, Jesus is actually presupposing that the church exists before he talks about you two gathering. Did you notice that? So the church is already presupposed before Jesus says anything about you two being together and I'm there in your midst. Why did I ask you to put a pin in the two or three witnesses? Because what Jesus is appealing to, and we've actually talked about this in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses, do you remember that? I talked about the two witnesses. The two witnesses here are referring to the same principle found in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 20-ish, somewhere around there, that any accusation against someone cannot be established on any one witness, but you need two, maybe three witnesses to establish the, 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 the validity of the accusation. And so what's happening here in Matthew 18, what the Lord is saying is that when you are dealing with a sinful pattern in someone's life, and there are the requisite witnesses to bear testimony that this person's involved in willful sin, then rest assured that when the church takes that disciplinary action, I am with you there. I am standing with you there. When two or three of you are gathered, I'm there agreeing to that decision. Does that make sense? Right? That's in the text. Matthew 18, 20 is not saying anything about when two or three Christians happen to gather, that is a church. What Matthew 18 is in fact teaching is a teaching pursuing holiness through the process of church discipline. The church is already pre, uh, presupposed in Matthew 18. It doesn't come into creation in verse 20. I hope you see that. So here's the important question. If a church is not simply a bunch of Christians who are gathered together, then what makes a gathering of Christians a church? It's a really important question. I think we've established that a bunch of Christians gathering together does not automatically make a church, so it's an important question. Then what makes Christians a church? Now, this question, what makes a church a church, was really important in the Protestant Reformation, which we just celebrated a few years ago. Um, in 2017, it was the 500th anniversary. Because when the Protestant reformers were challenging, wanting to bring reforms to the Catholic Church, which was the only church that existed, they had to answer the question then, well then, what makes a church a church? Because up until that time, no one had really asked the question. Not because it wasn't important, but it was simply assumed. Because if you were a Christian... Every Christian worldwide was part of what? The only church in town on the globe was the Catholic Church. So when the reformer said there's something seriously wrong, we have to reform the church, the fundamental question was, well, then what makes a church a church? And so it came down to, depending upon who you read, it, it, it shifts a little bit. They're called the marks of the church, the symbols of the church. The, but the, the, what makes, what marks a true church? And at the very bare minimum, the, the reformers would agree that it comes down to two things that also assumes a third. And here they are. Number one, the right preaching of the word of God, right? The right administration of the ordinances, and then biblically qualified leadership. 
I know that's not sexy or like, wow, I never knew that. But we're going to unpack that because it's so important. So if you're looking for a church, you know, you're visiting here or you're just new to town or whatever it is, or, or maybe you're going to move away and you're going to look for a church, you should know what you'd be looking for. The right preaching of the word of God, the right administration of the ordinances, and biblically qualified leadership. Do not, do not be looking for the music style, whether or not they had enough donuts at the refreshment table, or whether or not the message was funny or not. Right? Now, you, you guys are like, ha, 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 that, that's a little bit funny. But that's what people do when they look for churches. I ask it every week. Now, people don't come out and say, well, I was hoping you'd be funnier. That's not what they say. They don't say, oh, your donuts kind of suck. That, that's not what they say. But when I listen to them, that's pretty much what they're doing. The musical style. Do I like the refreshments? Was that entertaining? Was it like a TED Talk? And I just want to say, friends, and, and I just pastorally, out of, out of my love for you guys, if you're wondering why maybe your maturity in Christ has stagnated, right, your growth is just stalled out, or true abiding joy might be evading you, or your life is, you're feeling yourself kind of fragment apart, can I just say that maybe it's because you're actually not looking for a church, but actually a comedy club, Right? Because that's what it is. Good music, good food, and a funny guy. Well, that's the improv in L.A. That's not a church. And I just got to say, you know, I mean, sometimes with, with preaching, I forget there's a crowd. And sometimes I feel like I'm just talking one-on-one. -on -one, and so I say things that, you know, like punch you in the throat kind of things. But <laughs> not that that's my counseling. We don't teach that here. But, <laughs> guys, sometimes I want to talk to those people because they're... If you're a new Christian, if you're immature in your faith, you're just growing, I don't, of course, you're learning, you're growing. But there are so many mature Christians that when they think of a church, that's what they're looking for. Fancy programs for my kids or whatever. And, and, and I get it, but I want to say, you know, brother, sister, just take your head out of your butt, okay? <laughs> okay? And put it in God's word. I know, what a mean pastor. Last week, he, he said he's going to punch me in the throat. Now he told me to take my head out of my butt. Oh, I'm going to leave it. To, no, I, I want my head in my butt. My, my point is, this, I, Lori's going to get on me about this, so this probably won't happen in the second hour. My point is this. This, this kind of illustrates some of the challenges. L let me back up. Think of it this way. If, if you just think Christianity, if you just think Christianity is about God, religion, the church, making bad people uh, good, then it makes sense that's why you think of the church. And honestly, there's a lot easier things you can do to be good. You can learn to be good. You can go to the Mormons. You can go to Jehovah. You, you can go to atheists. I know a lot of loving. Um, you don't need God to be a good person. Right? Some, that may be shocking, but that's true. You can be very morally upright and never be part of a church. So if you think Christianity is just about bad people being good, there's a lot easier things you can do than Christianity. And maybe that's why you view the church the way it is. Here's the difference. Christianity is not about bad people being good. It's about dead people becoming alive. And if you get that distinction, it makes all the difference in the world. Friends, can you imagine if you had a cancer diagnosis? I know some of you have had that horrible experience. And you go to a renowned cancer surgeon. 
You would never judge that doctor, that physician, that surgeon, because they have country music playing in the waiting room, and you like soft jazz or whatever. You would not be, oh, I'm out of here because this is country, and I'm not in the country, right? I'm in the soft jazz. You would never go to the dirt nurse's station and go, oh, you got that cheapo dumb-dumb lollipops? What about the good blow pop with the gum in the middle? You would never ask that surgeon or be, judge him because his jokes fell flat. You'd have one question. Can you heal my cancer? Can you save my life? Because if the answer is yes, then none of those other things matter. Likewise, if the answer is no, then none of those things matter. Friends, is Christianity, is the church just about making bad people good? Or is it about making dead people alive? That's what the church is. Helping make dead people alive. Now, okay, that was, wow, 30-minute introduction again. Here's the 15-minute sermon. So here are my three points. How do you, what makes Christians a church? Number one, the right preaching of the word of God. Friends, this is quite literally the foundation of the people of God. Let me just simply say this. God's word, okay, and we'll take a quick look at that. God's word creates God's people. The word of God creates the people of God. We can't go through a full biblical theology of this, but so quickly, let me just kind of work through it. In Genesis 1, we literally see the word of God being spoken and all creation coming into existence. In Exodus chapter 19, God gives his word from Sinai to the Hebrew slaves and they become his people at that moment. Deuteronomy 27 verses 1 through 13, God again gives his word to his people and the foundation of Israelite society is created. In Ezekiel 37, moving into the prophets, there's a vision that Ezekiel the prophet, ha prophet has of a valley of dry bones, and God just speaks his word, and those, those dry bones come alive. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, heaven and earth, heaven and earth, the, the reality we know, the physicality here, it's all going to pass away, but my words will not pass away. 2 Timothy 3.16, God's word will teach you, will train you, it will rebuke you, it will correct you. In short, friends, the word of God will transform, renew, and restore you. You need the preaching of the word of God because in that Christ is made known to you and Christ is made real to you. The word of God and its preaching is the centerpiece of the people of God because when the word of God goes out, man, the people of God are created. And that is why even historically, even architecturally, you see that. If any of you, my friends, you have a Catholic background, if you're a recovering Catholic or something, when you walk into the Catholic church, what is at the center at the front? The altar. 
Because in the Catholic theology, it's about the Eucharist and you just being in the presence of the Eucharist, receiving grace, whether or not you're regenerate in your heart or repented of your sin. That's at the center. But notice what is at the center of every Protestant church. The pulpit. Or the pulpit. Why? Because when the reformers realize what makes a church a church, as important as some of these other elements are, it wasn't the Eucharist, and they kicked that altar to the side and put front and center a pulpit. Whether it's a big, huge, ornate pulpit in England, like you walk up in steps, or it's just a music lectern or something in between, the Word of God is of central importance because it creates the people of God. So the right preaching of the Word of God. The second thing that makes the church is the right administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why? You might think, these are just things you do at a church. No, because both of these are visible signs of God's new covenant work. In other words, they're visible, tangible displays of the gospel doing its job. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, why don't you turn over to Romans 6. Paul says in Romans 6 that we are baptized, we are immersed in Christ's new covenant through his death and resurrection, and baptism is the symbolic gesture of that action taking place. Romans chapter 6, let me read those three verses, verses 1 through 3, excuse me, 3 to 5, Paul writes this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism, get this, is the initiatory rite that shows that we are a part of this new covenant people. Similarly, in a similar way, the Lord's Supper then is the ongoing rite that testifies that we are in keeping with this new covenant community. This is what Jesus says in Luke 22. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So both of those are signs of the gospel work being enacted in someone's life and in the life of that community, which is why in a church, if you're a Christian, you get baptized once, but you participate ongoing in the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper or communion is the ongoing profession to the realities of the new covenant of grace in your life. It is the ongoing profession that my life is not sustained by bread and water alone, that my life is not sustained by my merit or what I do, but I receive life from Christ himself and nothing else. That's what's taking place when you receive the bread and the cup as symbols of life and death. One of these ordinances, baptism, is a sign of entrance into the church. The other one, the Lord's Supper, is the sign or ordinance of ongoing life with the church. Those two are so critical. So in baptism, and, and this is pulling a little bit from last week, in baptism, friends, the one individual joins the many. You become part of the universal church as a Christian. It, is, it, is, it doesn't make you a Christian, but it's, this, it's the physical sign of what happened internally. And in the Lord's Supper, the many become one 
as we confess our solidarity and union with Christ and his people as we partake of the elements. So let me begin to to weave these various strands together. Whenever Christians gather around the preaching of God's word and they administer who is coming into the new covenant community, the universal church, through the rite of baptism, and who is an ongoing part of this new covenant community, uh, the local church, as seen in the Lord's Supper, you have a church. Now, um, go with me to Matthew 16. We, We are in a sense, building a theology of the church here. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 are really key here. Now, I I want you to, I hope you still have thoughts of Matthew 18 in your head because there's some themes you're going to hear in Matthew 16, but listen to what Jesus is saying, starting at verse 18. We're just going to read two verses. Jesus says to Peter, so Peter just confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the hope of salvation, right? And the Lord says, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounds a lot like what we read in chapter 18. This binding and loosing, what is that? What Jesus was saying was, and this is some, uh, kind of a, a Jewish understanding, when you could do something permissible by the Torah, you were loosed from the law. You could do it. But when you couldn't do something, you were bound by the law. And what Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, man. And whatever you say is going to be bound or loosened based on what you say. What is Jesus saying to Peter? And by the way, this is where the Catholics believe they are the only true church because they think that the, the, what Jesus was telling Peter is a direct apostolic secession to the Rome and the Pope today. Well, obviously, no, that's not the case. Peter was symbolic of someone who understands who Christ is and is building his life upon it. And Jesus says, on that foundation, I'm building my church, and the church will have the keys of the kingdom. What's he getting at practically? That you people of the new covenant, it's your job to say... Hey, brother, sister, you're bearing fruit. You are a Christian. You might be tempted. You may be discouraged. You may feel like you're not a Christian. But let me say, I've seen your life. You are a Christian. Brother, sister, if I can call you that, your profession and your lifestyle have not matched up for a long time. And people have tried to talk to you, and you keep rejecting it, and you keep rejecting it. Brother, I don't know your heart, but I don't think you are a Christian. Because I don't see it. And many others don't see it either. I'm exercising the keys. Hey, brother, you're in, regardless of how you feel. Hey, brother, sister, you may be out, regardless of how you feel. That's what Jesus is saying. We have a solemn responsibility. We don't give salvation out. Be clear. We don't do that. Only the Holy Spirit does that. We are just simply the community that's saying, you have, you're bearing fruit. Everything I'm reading in the word, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Everything I'm reading there, you're doing it, brother. Even if you feel beaten down, you're bearing fruit. You, on the other hand, you feel like you're a Christian, but you live like hell. Brother, I don't think you're in the kingdom. Losing it. You may be in, but I have the keys because I'm part of the church. And we have to determine who's actually speaking for Jesus here. That's powerful. That's what these, the preaching of the word and the ordinances do. It's a solemn responsibility to be a member of a church. It's heavy. We're going to wrap up. There is an assumed 
implication of the preaching, there, there's, a, there's an assumption in the preaching of the Word of God and the administration of these ordinances, and that is biblically qualified leadership to guard, to promote, to ensure that, that this thing happens, and that is the third, I guess you could say, mark of a New Testament church, biblical qualified leadership. Friends, all through the New Testament, the writers are speaking about, you see it, elders, overseers, deacons, pastors even. In Titus 1.5, Paul says to uh, Titus, hey, appoint elders in every town in Crete, in the church of Crete. So maybe there was just one church in Crete and Paul wanted an elder in each town so they could have some kind of unity there. We're not sure. Or there was a bunch of churches in Crete in every town and Paul needed elders there. The point is, Paul tells Titus, in every town, every church, get elders going. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy, this is the qualifications of elders and deacons. These are how, what they need to do to lead the church in Ephesus. In 1 Peter 5, Peter's writing to the churches that had been scattered because of persecution, instructing the elders how they are to shepherd the flock of God. The point is, every time you read about a church, you're going to read about elders and deacons and pastors and overseers. And depending on your theological background, sometimes they're called bishops. If you have an Anglican or a liturgical background, you'll see bishops. Now, this doesn't mean that there are four or five offices in the church. There's really only one office. That is the office of servant. And either those servants meet the physical needs of the church, we call them deacons, or they meet the spiritual needs of the church, we call them elders. But they are just servants. Now, you might be asking, well, what's this about overseers and pastors and all these other words, right? All these words that we see, elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, Believe it or not, they all refer to one office. And, and let me explain to you this way quickly because we don't have too much time. An elder, whenever you read about that, it's just speaking of the man's character, right? Who he is in his character. The title overseer or bishop speaks of what he's actually doing. He is overseeing the affairs of the church. And finally, pastor or shepherd refers to how he's ministering to the church. So all those titles, the different New Testament writers use them to nuance the role differently, but they're all referring to an elder. And, and here at this church, you won't hear the word pastor as often. We call them elders, staff elders, lay elders. We call them elders. Um, if you want to say, hey, overseer Rick, I'm fine. Bishop Roadheaver, okay, whatever, but elders is the term we use. Pastor Rick, yes, even that. So friends, who do Christians think they are? Christians are the church. But there is a universal and local aspect to that church. All Christians are by definition members of the universal church. I want to be clear of that. But not all Christians are members of local churches. And for some, that's a deliberate choice. For others, like me, you just were never taught. You've never taught to think about the central importance of the local church in your life before, right? So some people, they made that choice. Some people, they just didn't know any better and didn't get teaching. That's why we're doing this series in part. So the question is, why would a Christian, a member of the universal church, not also be a member of a lo local church by choice? And friends, the reasons are many. Some are completely understandable. There was abuse. Maybe you were abused by an authoritative church or, or somebody in your family was abused or maybe you just never had lack of teaching on the topic. And if that's you, you need to grow in that, right? That, that is not an excuse to push away. That's actually a reason to lean in and, and figure out what's going on here. Some people, their reasons are unbiblical and some are actually sinful. 
They refuse to put themselves under God-ordained authorities in their life, or they just refuse to be held accountable for their Christian testimony, and they don't want to do any of that. No, one, no one's the boss of them. That is unbiblical, friends, and that is sinful. If that is you, I want to lovingly call you to repentance because that is not what God asks. He asks you to partner with a covenant community for his glory and your good and their good. And some reasons may just be plain silly. Friends, local churches are made up of Christians who gather around the preaching of the word of God, who administer the ordinances that give shape and define that new covenant community under the faithful leadership of qualified elders until Jesus comes for us or takes us home. Next two weeks, last two weeks of the series, we're going to talk at how this corporate identity works itself out in our individual lives and then vice versa. Let's close with prayer. Steve, would you and the team come up? Father, we come before you and we're grateful. Thank you for the word of God that you've given to us. You haven't left us without knowledge or direction. You make it very clear in your word, yet you give us so much freedom. So while there is a structure and a shape to what we are, there's still so much freedom in how, what that looks like, how it's applied. Father, again, we do not want to crash into the ditch of legalism or crash into the ditch of antinomianism as if you have nothing to say on these things or, or it's just strenuous uh, laws and regulations, but there is freedom and grace. Father, we want to live in a way that honors you to this world. Would you help us do that in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.